The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio, KSquid 90.7 FM. KSQD thanks environmental innovations for supporting sustainability now. B Corp certified woman-owned environmental innovations helps businesses, nonprofits, and schools with free resources and cash incentives from the Monterey Bay Area Green Business Program. More information is available at greenbusinessca.org and environmentalin.com. Thank you, Environmental Innovations, for supporting community radio, KSquid 90.7 FM. Good evening, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Samard, Professor of Forestry and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia, and we're going to be talking about the social life of trees. Her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has just been published. Uh, Professor Samart, are you there? I am. Oh, How good. are you tonight? I'm pretty good. Um, how about you? I'm good, thank you. Sitting here in British Columbia. <laughs> I hope it's a, it's a beautiful day out up there. Um, yes. Professor Samard is doing a free online presentation tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. for Bookshop Santa Cruz, and I decided I want to read the blurb that appears on the bookshop's website. And, and this is the quote. Suzanne Samard is a pioneer on the frontier of plant communication and intelligence. She's been compared to Rachel Carson, hailed as a scientist who conveys complex technical ideas in a way that's dazzling and profound. Samard writes in inspiring, illuminating, and accessible ways how trees living side by side for hundreds of years have evolved, how they perceive one another, learn and adapt their behaviors, recognize neighbors, and remember the past how they have agency about the future, elicit warnings and mount defenses, compete and cooperate with one another with sophistication, characteristics ascribed to human intelligence, traits that are the essence of civil societies, and at the center of it all, the mother trees, the mysterious powerful forces that connect and sustain the others that surround them. Uh, that is a, a fairly uh, interesting quote. I don't know what else to call it. And I want to welcome you to sustainability now, and thank you for being my guest. Um, I, having said that, I want to recommend your book as a fantastic read and memoir. And what I want to focus on tonight is mostly the science and the implications of your research and some of the debates over forest networking and networks. And I just want to note, of course, we're pretty committed to our redwood forests here in Santa Cruz, not quite the same as yours, um, even though they're mostly second growth. 
So maybe as a start, you could describe, you know, your, the basis, uh, what, what your research is basically, and, and um, uh, the whole idea of how trees relate to each other and communicate with each other. Yeah, well, um, you know, we used to think that trees uh, were just solitary individuals that, you know, fought their way through the world by competing for resources. But my work over the years, as well as other people's work, um, shows that um, that trees are really, they're very social, that they, they live in communities, and they're actually connected together below ground through this amazing fungal web, and they communicate through this fungal web. They, they also communicate above ground um, by sending signals through the air. And so they have, they have many ways of, uh, of communicating with each other, which serves them well because, because they do live beside each other for hundreds of years. And, um, and they need to sort of know who their neighbors are and how to negotiate with them and how to, um, you know, perceive each other and, uh, yeah, just learn how to live together. And so they have, yeah, they've evolved many ways to communicate through these um, various ways, above ground and below ground. Well, in your book, you describe, you know, the, the process whereby you, you discovered this, you know, the, whole, the whole sort of rhizomatic network that uh, underpins trees. Maybe you could say something about that, about the, you know, the discovery. I know it's a long story, um, but... <laughs> yeah, no, no problems. Um, yeah, so, you know, all trees all over the world, including redwoods, um, they form relationships with uh, fungi. Um, and there's various groups of fungi, but this particular group is uh, is a mutualistic fungus. That means that they, they help the trees, and in turn, the trees help them. And the way they do this is that the fungi... Um, take photosynthetic carbon from the trees, which they use for energy, in order to grow these fungal networks through the soil. And those fungal networks serve to pick up nutrients and water from the soil and bring them back to the tree in exchange for this photosynthate. And it turns out that a, a good portion of these fungi are what we call generalists. That means that they, they can actually associate with many different species of plants and trees and form networks with, um, and, and link together and form networks with other trees of other species. And within a species, like the redwoods, for example, you know, they form what's called an arbuscular mycorrhizal fungal network, and those redwoods would be linked together by this fungal network. And through the network, um, these trees exchange all kinds of uh, information and resources, and um, resources being like water and carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and information like whether or not they're stressed out or whether they're shaded or, or whether something might be attacking them or whether they're in danger. They actually communicate this kind of information back and forth between each other. And this actually helps them survive and live uh, these social lives. What, 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 you know, so, so there must be some evolutionary advantage to all of this. I, mean, I presume that, that, that there is there. But how, how did this happen? You know, what's the, you know, the, the symbiosis between the fungi and the trees? I mean, do you have any ideas about, uh, you know, the origins of this relationship? Yeah, actually, um, you know, there's lots of fossil records, and this is very well documented that, that the migration of, of uh, plants onto land from the ocean onto land required that the that the that the plants actually form this symbiosis, 
in order for the plants to get the nutrients from this hostile environment that was basically a lot of rock and a very, um, you know, a very hostile kind of uh, environment. Um, and the fungi, you know, grew out of the sort of out of these sort of oceanic plants and migrated onto these rocks and sort of dissolved the nutrients out of the rocks and brought them back to these plants. And that helped them evolve from being very simple orga organisms into, you know, eukaryotic cells, basically, and, and then later higher-level plants and eventually trees. And, um, and so that actually allowed photosynthesis to start, take, you know, dominating our Earth, our terrestrial ecosystems. And with photosynthesis, through the uptake of carbon dioxide, you know, there's also an emission of oxygen, and that led to oxygenation of our environment, which also, of course, led to the evolution of, of animals and, um, and eventually human beings. Uh, is it, I mean, is it fair to assume that the, the fungi colonized land first, or was it, was it simultaneous? And, you know, because uh, that seems like a real coincidence there if they, they came up on land at the same time. You know, from what I understand, um, from and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, I'm an ecologist, but yeah, from what sure. I understand, these things did, um, you know, the, the, the fossil records do show the first land plants had these mycorrhizal symbioses already in place. Already, so, you can uh -huh. see the arbuscules in the roots of, the, of, the, of these fossilized plants, and so the thinking is that, you know, about 450 million years ago that the, the symbiosis was actually essential to the migration of, onto, of plants onto land. So I think it did happen around the same time, but, you know, that could have been over a long period of time. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and we can't go back, at least we can't go back yet to see how that, that all happened. Um, you also write in the book about how, uh, well, why don't you tell us about mother trees? And then, and then we can talk yeah. about children trees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, this uh, we kind of, I guess, in in Europe around the late 1800s, um, there were researchers who had been studying. You know, people have studied fungi for a long time and eaten fungi, and it's been a part of our diets. And um, but but the idea that these mutualisms form between plants and fungi really wasn't fully understood until the late 1800s when there was a scientist called, his name was Franck, um, discovered these symbioses. I think he was a German for, uh, researcher. And, um, and since then, you know, we've, we've come to understand them as, you know, absolutely essential to the, to the survival and fitness of the plants. And then eventually over time, you know, as the understanding increased, there were some researchers in the United Kingdom mostly David Reed, who is, who is an emeritus professor at Sheffield now, University of Sheffield, um, he did some early experiments where, um, you know, following the work and observations of many people who had these hunches that, you know, in forests that fungi were, you know, in, important to the growth of trees and, and that they formed, you know, fairy rings around pine trees was a, an early yeah. clue. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even one study in a forest that, where somebody took some labeled or carbon-14 and labeled these trees and found, you know, at distance, carbon-14 showing up in these plants around these pine trees. And David Reed took that idea and he tested it in the lab that, that pine trees could be connected together by a mycorrhizal fungus. And he grew these pines um, in a root box in the lab and he colonized them with 
a fungus, a mycorrhizal fungus, and he labeled one of the seedlings with carbon-14 and saw that it moved to its neighbor. And he used, you know, photographic film to sort of take a picture of this, and it was quite an amazing discovery. It was published in Nature in the early 1980s. And then um, I came along later and did, did my PhD in the early 1990s, and I was wondering, you know, could these connections actually occur in real forests, <laughs> in forests in North America? And I studied the forest in British Columbia, and I discovered that, yes, these networks do exist in forests and that they transmit carbon, just like David had shown in his lab study. And eventually, you know, this research area became really controversial. It's a long, long story, but eventually, you know, one of the problems was that people didn't really, you know, couldn't see these fungal networks. They, they didn't really believe, even researchers, you know, it was hard to believe that they existed, that trees would be connected and sharing resources below ground. And so we set out, my graduate students and I set out to map what that network would look like in a forest. And we used molecular DNA techniques to actually map where all the trees were and all the fungal connections of one species of, fun of fungus, a rhizopogon, which is a truffle-forming for fungus. Mm -hmm. And we mapped this network, and we found that the most highly connected trees were the biggest, oldest trees. And then we did a bunch of experiments. And when I say highly connected, that means they're connected to all the other trees around them. And they were connected to more trees than the smaller trees were connected to other trees. And the reason is they just have bigger root systems, they've got bigger canopies, and so they are transmitting a lot of carbon and energy below ground to feed this network. And it turns out they not only feed the network to grow a network, but they actually some of that carbon and nutrients ends up in seedlings that grow around these old trees. And, and through many, many experiments, we figured out that, that these trees actually nurture their seedlings, not only, you know, seedlings um, of the same species, but that they could recognize their own, their own seedlings, their kin, and share nutrients with them. And so that's what, what led us to call these hub trees, these central trees, these big old trees, mother trees. Mm -hmm. And... Um what what's the relationship then to to the you know to seedlings to young trees how do how do the mother trees relate to those well so when a when the seeds you know when the seed of a, an old tree the cones open the seed falls to the forest floor <laughs> the seed germinates and it takes about a, a month or two or a few months in some cases for those little roots in the soil those radicals to become colonized by the network of the old trees that are already there. So they're mm -hmm. already existing, this vast mycorrhizal network, like a huge internet below ground. Yeah. And so these little seedlings tap into that network, and they basically benefit from the resource uptake of this network already. So it's already going, it's already you know associated with the big old trees, and the little seedlings, they tap into it and they benefit from it. But they also, the old trees also transmit some of their carbon and nutrients and water directly into those little seedlings. And so the seedlings are able to get a head start. Um, and if they're in the shade, they're able to overcome their photosynthetic deficits, which they have early on when they don't have very many needles. And that gets them going. And mm -hmm. then they establish and eventually become trees themselves. We need to take a short break, so uh, let's go ahead and do this. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM on your radio dial and ksqd.org, streaming on the Internet.
Well, you're listening to Sustainability Now. This is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest tonight is Professor Suzanne Simard, uh, Professor of Forestry and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Uh, and her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has just been published, and we've just been talking about, about her research. Um, and I want to actually now shift to some of the Oh, I don't know. Some of the science, uh, you know, philosophy of science questions that that are that you raise in the book, and in, in particular, uh, you talk about the reductionism of you know biological science and the implications of that reductionism for forests and forestry, um, and uh, you know, I, one ex- sort of expects that the collective consciousness of of a scientific discipline would change, right, as research findings sort of shift. I mean, this is, this is the whole argument about the, you know, Thomas Kuhn's uh, thing about scientific revolutions. Um, but you, you account of your struggles with the free-to-go policy in B- British Columbia seems to suggest that, that clear-cutting and plantation planting still rules. Now, is that correct? Uh, do you find that the sort of discourse, I guess, of forestry is changing towards a kind of a more holistic um, perspective and approach? You know, it's it's been a, a rocky road, I would say. It's been back and forth and back and forth, but generally, um, we're still clear-cutting and planting, with a few exceptions, um, and that sort of paradigm or that standard, I'll call it a standard operating practice, um, really harkens back to the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, it's economically, you know, expedient to do, to do that. It's cheap to clear cut. Um, it's easy to plant those plantations and, and a lot of money is made. Um, and, and especially, you know, going after big old trees is very lucrative. And so, you know, those are the first things that we lose. And in clear cutting, you get not just the big old trees, but also all the other trees. And so, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made, and it's being made very, very hand over fist. Um, and has it changed? Well, you know, that paradigm really grew out of the agricultural model, and and the agricultural model of production, um, forestry, or which is you know plant fast growing trees and grow them quickly, weed them and then you can cut them down in short order in, in a few decades. Um, that really grew out of you know I, ideas of evolution that was about natural selection and competition mm-hmm, reigned mm-hmm, supreme mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and was applied to ecology and then applied to forestry. And, you know, and, and that's taken hold and that's really the dominant paradigm or the dominant method that, of how we manage forests now. And it hasn't changed very much. And, and to be honest, we're down to our last 3% of old growth, our big iconic old growth forests. We only have 3% left because basically, you know, the, we have gone from a province of old growth forests when I was, you know, in a kid in the 60s to a province of clear cuts. And, you know, I, it, it's heartbreaking to see, um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, we we'd still need to keep fighting to, to save what we have and change forest practices so that we, you know, honor these connections better. And, you know, we can make shifts. We can improve things. And, and yeah, so there's, there is a push to change, but change is slow. Well, you know, my, my understanding is that the, uh, the American sort of approach to plantation forests 
comes from Germany, that, that this was uh, something that was instituted in Germany in the 19th century, um, although I may be incorrect about that. But um, the other thing, interesting thing, of course, is that the competitive notion uh, of evolution uh, is, is ascribed to the sort of uh, free markets of Victorian times when Charles Darwin was writing his books, that that was the model, mm -hmm. a social model that he adopted, right? And as compared to Prince mm -hmm. Kropotkin, who talked about mutualism among species. Um, and so it's sort of interesting uh, that what you're, you know, you're talking about goes back to that idea of, of mutualism, but it, it's very much against the sort of philosophical trend of, of contemporary society. Um, and so uh, this... this um, what, and, and, you know, the, the, the idea that, that the science will change people's minds about and, and their practices and their research, which seems like such a, a no-brainer, turns out not to be the case because institutions are so powerful that even though, yeah. right, that, that there are all of these economic forces that keep pushing mm -hmm. in the direction of plantation forestry uh, because of the economic return, um, mm -hmm. supposed economic return. And, and that kind of gets to this whole question about the, the resemblance between tree society and human society. Um, and uh, do you have any, th to begin with, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, that, that was a, a lot of uh, <laughs> concepts that you just yeah, talked I about. Yeah, I, I do oh, that. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, no, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, really. And um, let me just start about the part about, you know, the adoption of German forestry techniques. You know, there, it, it wasn't necessarily that German forestry was bad. It was actually, you know, pretty darn good forestry. The, you know, the difference, yeah. one of the main differences in Germany, you know, there would be family units that would, like, have jurisdiction uh -huh. over whole valleys. Uh -huh. and. And they would manage their forests based on local knowledge. Yeah. And they would develop their own, what we call silviculture systems, which is how do you the forest, how do you regrow the forest, based on those local conditions. And, and so, you know, maybe selection harvesting was good in one area or patch cutting was good in another. Um, but they, you know, it was through trial and error that they developed these techniques that worked on these small family-based units. And... And when North America was basically um, settled, you know, colonized by Europeans um, and, and basically moved across from the east coast of, of North America to the west coast, cutting trees, I mean, part of, there, there's a whole social aspect to that of fear of forests, I guess, right, and also right. just making way for these settlers and, and basically, you know, cutting down the forest from the east to the west. But modern forestry really did kind of adopt sort of one some very narrow aspects of German forestry, and you know, and really it was it was driven mostly by economics rather than you know how German forests were managed, which was based on you know local conditions. Instead, it was um, you know let's gonna let, we're gonna use you know the most expedient, cost-effective way to cut forests, which is clear cutting. And, it, and basically kind of ignoring local conditions. And, um, and, and really, if you look across the West Coast, for example, of North America, which is Canada, United States equally, and um, 
you know, there's a huge variety of forest types from Cal- Northern California all the way up to Alaska. We have huge mountain ranges. We've got dry forests. We have wet forests. We have mountain forests. We have coastal forests. And yet, what is the method that we use? Clear cutting and planting. And there's so much variety and species diversity that we have a lot of choices, but we don't use them. Um, and it's because, you know, in the process of sort of parceling out this, these forests to make money, you know, we kind of get into this sort of, um, you know, it's it, it becomes like a self-reinforcing loop, right? Where right, sure. you get an infrastructure in place to, you know, where you've got, you know, companies that are, have licenses and then they start, you know, they get machinery and then they get, you know, contractors and they get, they clear cut and then there's planting industry get, gets into place and then the herbicide industry, Monsanto, you know, gets their digs in there. We need to take a short break, so uh, let's go ahead and do this. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM on your radio dial and ksqd.org, streaming on the Internet. This is uh, Sustainability Now. I'm talking with Professor Suzanne Samard of the University of British Columbia. We've just been talking about, let's see, uh, German uh, forestry, and the, the fact that vast forestries across North America are basically managed from a single perspective, whereas the variety amongst forests and terrains and, uh, you know, ecosystems are so great that really you need to have much more local knowledge to, uh, to force them, to, to harvest them sustainably. Is that a fair summary? Yes, yes, it is. And I, I think that, you know, as we move forward and, and, find more sustainable ways to manage our forests, it really is going to be about knowing our forests, knowing our local forests, knowing all the variability associated with them, the plants, the the animals, the trees, and, you know, and understanding how they all interact and then, you know, making intelligent choices about how how to harvest these trees. And, And generally, you know, I would say, the approach that we're taking of clear cutting is probably going to be like one of the least desirable ways to go. The clear cut harvesting that is the most common method, it's so easy, right? right. It's so easy and, and you make so much money. And, um, and leaving, but leaving some trees behind, especially the big old mother trees, is so valuable because, you know, they have genes that have been, you know, the DNA in, in their. Uh, in their cells have been through many climatic changes, for for example. And that variability in their genetics due to climate variation is essential for us to, for trees to be able to survive and cope with cl- changing climates in the future. And so, you know, by selectively always taking out those big old trees, clear-cutting them, we're really, you know, short-circuiting our ecosystem as well as ourselves because, you know, we, re- we need those we need that seed. We need those genes in order to adapt and and survive as climate changes in the future. Yeah, when and and your book you write about uh, the that with plantation forestry, the trees don't have those rhizomatic networks to support each other and and often languish. Is that is that the case? Did I get that right? It's it's partly right. It, it, they they do have rhizomatic they're called mycorrhizal networks. Yeah, right, so right. they these young plant, planted trees. So you know when they get started, 
they'll have a few species of these mycorrhizal fungi associated with them. And they're species that are kind of like weeds. They're kind of like dandelions, where they, they grow quickly. They don't need a lot of energy to grow, and they're ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Whereas in an old-growth forest, like a, like a several-century-old forest, the fungal diversity is really, really high. Instead of like maybe five species of fungi that you would find in a, in a new plantation, there would be hundreds if not thousands of species. And each one of those fungal species has a niche. They do special things. Mm-hmm. So as a, tr- as a forest grows big and old and takes up a lot of carbon, it also needs a lot of nutrients from the soil. And those nutrients are bound in all kinds of little soil pores, and they're bound with minerals, they're, they're in organic compounds. And so the, the, the trees need all this diversity of fungi to get out all the nutrients it needs in order to grow big and tall, to become a great big redwood that's 100 meters in height. Um, and so, yeah, so these, when we convert these old growth forests to plant plantations, we lose so much of that diversity. We, we basically go from hundreds to thousands of fungal species to maybe four or five or maybe 10. And it takes decades, decades, if not a hundred or more years to recover that diversity. And if the plan, like in our BC forest, is to, you know, cut those forests again and 50 or 60 years or 100 years even, you'll never recover that diversity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, eventually you start to lose, you lose biodiversity over time. It it sounds a bit like we're talking about alienating trees from their conditions of production. Um, I'm just throwing that in as a bit of a joke, but... Well, yeah, I mean, we we really are, you know, not giving them a lot of choices. We're not not leaving them with the full suite of arsenal they need in order to survive and, and grow and and be really productive. So uh, I want to I want to ask a bit about uh, about the nature of this society. Okay, um, the way that you just talk about it and describe it um, makes it sound like the the networks connecting the trees are much more than simply connections amongst individual trees. Uh, and of course, we have that tendency, right? We see the trees and not the forest. But, but a, a single tree is not a forest, and trees in the forest are not simply individuals. But as I was thinking about it, it, it seemed to me we don't have a language to imagine or talk about this kind of entity without mm-hmm. using, you know, the terms and concepts we apply to human beings and society. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, is there another way to talk about forests that's not either reductionist or anthropocentric? Yeah, you know... This this is a very interesting topic, and and I think, you know, it's really easy to um, dismiss this kind of science because it's anthropomorphizing or the concepts. And I I want to explain that that, and I I think, yeah, yeah. you know, we don't have in the English language, you know, we're borrowing or I'm borrowing words that describe human societies to help us understand forest societies. And, and, you know, we've always, you know, for so long thought of trees as just like these inanimate objects that grow and compete and then, you know, for our use, for our exploitation. And I want people to understand that they are much more than this, right? They are living societies. They, they are a bunch of, you know, a, a collection of trees and plants and animals, fungi, bacteria that live together and they collaborate and they, they interact, they compete as well. They have all kinds of interactions that are very sophisticated and that sophistication um, is necessary from 
for these complex societies from which emerges like incredible um, things like the ability to clean our water and to regulate water flows and to mitigate fire spread, for example, or to to sequester carbon and house biodiversity. Like there's so many emergent properties from those. And but we've reduced it down to this sort of in thinking of them as individual trees, we've lost the idea, we've, we've lost this understanding or we've ignored that they are societies like, you know, that are a lot like human societies. And I'm using those words to help people understand and really regain that understanding that, you know, as indigenous people, we've had that understanding for a long, long, long time. It's just really in modern science that we've shed that idea. We've forgotten it. And, um, and we need to bring it. We need to bring that back into into our our understanding and our knowing. Because by reducing it down to you know a bunch of individual trees that compete, we we have lost our understanding of how the forest works at a bigger scale. We've lost our understanding that the forest is much more than a bunch of trees. It's a place of solace. It's a place of spirit. It's a place where we have our existential existence depends on that. And, okay, so the other thing is the English language is pretty limited in how we can describe this. Like, I've searched for words. How do we describe these phenomenon that I'm seeing or that we, you know, many of us have seen, including our Aboriginal people, have known about it for thousands of years, about these underground networks and how they nourish the forest and how the trees are important to humans as much as humans are important to trees. And they, you know, if we look at their languages, these ancient languages, they have words for these that don't have to borrow from their human societies. They have words that describe this, this amazing phenomenon of the linkages between trees and the linkages between people and trees and the linkages between all creatures. And even in their languages, they're losing those amazing words. The English language lacks those words. And so... You know, if it lacks those words, I've got to use what we have. And it also helps people understand and relate um, to something that might, they might not have known about before. Hmm. So it's, it's important, I think. There's many reasons to use, you know, for me to use this, what we would call anthropomorphizing. It's, it's important. And there's one more point here that I want to make. Yeah. And that is um, this idea of anthropomorphizing. It's really a clever tool that scientists, or they use that word to kind of dismiss certain kinds of science, right? They say, oh, you, you know, you're becoming part of your science and therefore you're not objective. Well, you know what? You know, being so objective and being removed from what we study is actually making us miss a lot of stuff, right? We've become so um, enamored with ourselves to be objective that we've forgotten that we are part of this world, right? That that the trees are our relations, that the that the, the animals that live in, in the forest are our relations. We've actually evolved from similar, from common ancestors. And for us to forget that is actually, you know, it's hazardous to us, right? For us to forget that we are related to trees and we're related to, to the animals in the forest and the salmon in the ocean is actually part of the reason we're having so much trouble with our environment because we've exploited it as though it's not you know, as though we're superior, as though we're not part of it, as though we're not uh, um, part of this whole world that's connected together. So there's multiple reasons for using these words, for sure. 
Yeah, you uh, you you preempted some of my questions there, but but that's okay. Um, you mentioned back back uh, at some point you talked a bit about you know what are called ecosystem services provided by forests, which is also mm -hmm. part of the of the economist's lexicon. You know, the environmental economist's lexicon. But that seems again to be quite utilitarian, right? We should save mm -hmm. forests because they allow us to survive um, physically, mm -hmm. and um, and I, I mean I I'm really interested in, in what you you know what you said subsequently about uh, our relationship to the to the natural world, um, but of course, well I shouldn't say of course, but but this is a this is a perspective that's very strongly resisted. Um, in part because of our, you know, national, well, I don't want to include Canada, but, but American national ideology, right, which is organized around individualism and competition and some of these, these sorts of things and which does infuse our science very, very deeply. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering if, if, you know, you mentioned that there are some indigenous uh, words or terms to, uh, mm -hmm. that, that describe these relationships. And, you know, I know, translating them is a little bit difficult but but uh, is it possible to to translate them or to uh yeah there you know i think that there is and i think you know as as our as the indigenous people regain you know their power back and uh their jurisdiction over resources and you know at least in canada you know we're trying we're going through a reconciliation, a truth and reconciliation process of trying to, you know, um, to, to reinstate, um, you know, the, the rights of, of Indigenous people and to, to allow them to, to fulfill their, what they view as their obligations to the land, to look after the resources. Because when Europeans came to North America, they were disenfranchised from their land. They weren't allowed to look after their land anymore or to watch the variability in the oceans and the forest and, and to, to respond to it. Instead, you know, the Europeans kind of took over all those resources and said, okay, we're going to do it. We know a bit better way. Well, you know, we know the consequences of that. We, we you know, they're not very good. Um, and so in part of that, re, you know, reinstatement, if you want to say, or I don't know what the right word is, but to, for the eventually, you know, I think there's going to be a rebalancing, and and in part of that rebalancing is trying to you know, reinvigorate the languages, the, the languages that are disappearing, and there are you know a lot of indigenous people who are trying really hard to keep their languages, speak their languages, recover their languages, which were forbidden to be spoken actually in Canada for for a long, long time. Now they're you know they're reconnecting with the, with that language and the words um, is going to take, you know, I don't know what those words, I'm, I'm not an indigenous person, um, but I do in talking with them, I know that uh, with my friends, I know that, that they're working really hard to, to recover those words. There's one, you know, one phrase that is very common among uh, a lot of indigenous cu cultures worldwide, and that is that, you know, we are one with the earth, we are one. And in the Coast Salish language, the, the Hamalkaman language group, uh, the word that describes we are one is netfamast. And that, that's about the only word that I know, And it's, but it's that, that concept that we are all linked together, that we are one with this earth. That concept is is universal, and there are many, many words in many languages that describe that, not just the Coast Salish language. Yeah, I mean, if I can uh, 
again, sort of go down a rabbit trail. We're brought up to think about ours and yours um, from a very early age, right? And, mm-hmm. and, or mine and yours, I should say, right, as opposed to, to ours. And so it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, growing up in a different, in a, in a culture or society which has a very different view of human nature relationships, that becomes fundamental to one's, you know, world perspective. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to change that, especially when it's, when it's a widespread sort of perspective. Um, and mm-hmm. I actually, those who, listeners who have listened to, to other Sustainability Now broadcasts know that I, I keep bringing up this whole question of relationality amongst, amongst uh, humans and relationality to the, the natural world and mm-hmm. the way in which we are constituted not simply by our own individual consciousness but by our relationships. I sound like I'm preaching to you. Um, I saw, sorry about that. But, but no, I, I completely agree with you. We, we are about our relationships. In, in fact, but yes, carry on. With, yeah. Without those relationships, we're not humans. And so, yes. right? And so, I mean, that inverts the, the whole argument about uh, Margaret Thatcher's argument about there's no such thing as society, there's actually no such thing as individuals. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, trying to, to figure out how to, how to frame that. Um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a persuasive way is really difficult just because of the way that we've been brought up. Um, let, me, let me shift again, sh- sort of shift topics here. So um, in, in one of the passages in your books, in your book, excuse me, you, you talk about the way in which you had to take systems apart uh, to be able to publish results. And, and you write, I soon learned that it was almost impossible for a study of the diversity and connectivity of a whole ecosystem to get into print. There's no control, <laughs> the reviewers cried at my early papers. Um, so, so how have you dealt with that? Because it's, well, still, you know, it's still kind of dominant, yeah, isn't it? It's very dominant. In fact, you know, I, there's been some change, but, you know, the par- you know, the the process of publishing still requires, in fact, even more so, it used to be that you could publish like a 50-page monograph or monogram, and um, and that was hard to do, but people would still, it would be like this full suite of studies that was from beginning to end, and journals would take these big tomes on, and now, you know, the trend is for journals just to publish these little tiny sound bites almost, you know, with one objective and one hypothesis, or maybe multiple hypotheses, but the but the the papers themselves are quite short and succinct, and that sort of drives us towards more reduction of science. But then, you know, at the same time, we've got this whole arm of science that's just em- that's emerged in the last decade or two called complex adaptive system science or right. complexity yeah. science, yeah, yeah. and that's that science tries to you know address systems level. Uh, phenomenon, and and there's whole journals that that you know that are uh, built around that concept, and so it's easier to publish those kinds of broad-reaching papers. But generally, still in academia, you know, people are still rewarded, and um, you know, through grants and promotion and you know, professorships by you know how many papers they can publish, which drives them to publish smaller and smaller papers. And so it really is a system that is like another self-reinforcing loop, right? That 
Um, but you know what? What I did when when I started publishing, I would I try to do these big studies, and I would try to publish them. And yeah, they would basically say you can't just walk through the forest and expect to publish your work. Yeah. You can't just observe things. You have to you know have controls, and you've got to manipulate things, and you've got to you know reduce it down to a few little things. That was like a common theme. And and I did do that, right? I did do that, and and I was, but I was still able to find out a few things. Um, now I'm I'm publishing bigger studies, and and you know, and there are more venues for doing that. Um, but you know, we still are, you know, the the up and coming professors are still kind of trapped in this. If they want to get ahead, if they want to get tenure, if they want to get promoted, they still have to to follow this mantra of reduction of science and publishing small bits and pieces. Yeah, that's the nature of the academic ecosystem, I guess. We need to take a short break, so uh, let's go ahead and do this. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM on your radio dial and ksqd.org streaming on the Internet. This is Sustainability Now. My name is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Professor Suzanne Simard of the University of British Columbia, who studies the social life of trees. Her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has just been published. Um, I, I, I did want to bring up this, this one um, issue that I, I pointed out to you that, that you've written about by Lincoln Taiz, who's a professor emeritus of molecular cell and developmental biology at UCSC, UC Santa Cruz, and, and since... You know, it's local. I thought it would be interesting for listeners to to hear about this. So his most recent co-authored opinion is plants neither possess nor require consciousness. Um, and I thought it was all it was interesting that all eight co-authors on the opinion piece are men. And, you know, so I had sort of two questions. Well, no, then he, he also writes, what we've seen is that plants and animals evolve very different life strategies. The brain is a very expensive organ, and there's absolutely no advantage to the plant to have a highly developed nervous system. You know, I don't think we're talking about the same. He's talking about the same thing as you, as, as what you're talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, I haven't read that paper, and I, I, sh- I will. Um, well, I, but... I don't know if it's worth your time, but let's, uh, that's, an, <laughs> that's an editorial comment, okay? Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a great appeal for people to take up positions that, you know, that that are kind of like this, you said this and I'm going to say this, and, and, and really the truth is in between. Um, but, you know, trees do not, and plants do not have nervous systems. They do not have brains. But they have highly evolved structures that serve as, you know, these complex networks that are actually biological neural networks. That doesn't mean it's a brain. It just means it's a pattern. And that pattern is that you have hubs and links and you have nodes and they are patterned in a way that is highly um, efficient at transmitting information across these systems. They're resilient because they have multiple linkages that if some linkages are broken, then others will take over. Um, there's methods of transmitting information through um, through through uh, filaments, the fungal filaments in this case, but in a brain it would be like uh, neurons and axons. There are neurotransmitter-like chemicals that actually transmit through these fungal networks as well that, you know, they're basically moving resources and information around. 
Um, and, and so there's a lot of analogies. There, there's a lot of similarities, but they're not the same. And so when, when, when people try to say, oh, you know, it's not, this, it's not a brain, it's not a nervous system. Well, yeah, it's not a brain and it's not a nervous system. And plants don't need those, but they need other things that have highly conserved features in evolution that work, right? right they evolve yeah. because they work. Yeah, so they have these complex neural networks or biological neural networks, not nerves, but the pattern is of a complex network. So it's a very sort of different approach, if you can use that term, or, or strategy for, um, for surviving, I guess, is how you could think about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, right. Go on, go on. Well, yeah, I mean, the, these systems, you know, they're, they're, they're designed to be able to grow and, and have um, strong linkages. They're designed to retreat and grow and reinforce and, um, you know, adapt. They're very adaptable. They heal easily. And it doesn't, you know, it, 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 it's that pattern that's evolved. It's that, that uh, architecture that has evolved because it works so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway... Go go on. I think oh, I interrupted you. No, no, no. Actually, actually not. It, it, it. You know, as I was thinking about it and about what what he says, right? That that we've evolved. Well, animals have evolved consciousness as a way of of responding to their environment, right? And and of course, the question <laughs> is whether those strategies are instinctual, biological, or or learned, right? That's. I mean, evolutionary biology wants to say everything. Just about everything is instinctual. And, um, you know, others want to, want to say, well, mm-hmm. yes, there is that sort of basic framework, but how we deal with the world, you know, is very much ab- about the environment. But, but plants have a different, if I can use the term strategy, against that sort of implies mm-hmm. agency or a creator, which, you know, I want to avoid both of those, that, um, that they're not out there actually saying, oh, you know, well... This is what I should do in order to survive. It's a, it's a, it's a whole. Is it autonomic system? Is that how we would call what we would call it? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, yeah. I again, we you know we get in this trap of comparing yeah, yeah. you know our human selves to forests and plants and say, oh, you know, nothing is like us. And it's true. We're a unique species, and we we have a consciousness that we we define that consciousness because we are who we are and we say oh plants don't have that but plants have other ways of perceiving their environment where you know all these species all individuals are trying to make sense of their environment to survive Mm -hmm. and whether you you know want to pigeonhole it into consciousness um or agency one thing that plants do have like they they perceive and and they uh and, and they're they're very perceptive of who's around them, what, how related they are, what species they are, what, you know, what condition they're in, um, and then they they change their behaviors accordingly, and, and and that gives them agency, you know, to you know to to you know maybe grow roots in this direction to survive, right? Mm-hmm, it, it, mm-hmm. They have decision points at in 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 how you know the different you know their roots and their above ground parts how they grow. And, and, you know, sci- uh, sort of like the Western scientists would say, well, they're just responding and they're, you know, they're, they're, they, they don't have, um, they don't have agency, that, that it's just a response or an interaction or, you know, it's very clinical. And in, in, by reducing 
are thinking about plants down to that level, we miss so much. That's why, yeah, you know, scientists yeah. can only ever explain. They're so happy when they can explain like 50% of the variation and how the plant did that. <laughs> and it, it's because they're missing the other part, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that magical part that we dismiss so easily because we are so afraid that we, we're not going to compare them to us because mm-hmm. obviously we are superior and, you know, have consciousness and therefore are dominant. <laughs> yeah, maybe thinking that we're unique is part of the problem. Listen, I, the, my last question has to do with gardens, and I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but I, I had a couple of shows on gardens recently, and I have mm-hmm. a couple of languishing fruit trees in my backyard, and it seems <laughs> to me they lack those networks, which could help mm-hmm. them along. So I'm wondering, is there anything our listeners can do to help their th- trees thrive in their backyards and gardens? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, trees and plants, they, they grow in communities. You know, it's pretty rare to see or to find, like, uh, a forest or a community of, of plants or fruit trees. Well, fruit trees are different because we plant them, but yeah, yeah. that they grow by themselves. Yeah. You know, that, they, that they're there by themselves or they're the only species. They, they thrive in communities. So there's plants doing different things. You know, they, they might root in different layers of the soil they have crowns that have capture light in different in different positions in the crown or they capture different wavelengths There's, you know such variation and they you know to to have a thriving ecosystem you know the, it's good to have a society of plants to mm-hmm. have a, have a community of m- multiple species doing mm-hmm. different things because they actually um are synergistic right yeah, they're complementary yeah. to each other and they you know for example um if you have trees that that root deeply they can bring water up from deep in the water table bring it up and share it with neighboring plants and therefore the whole community is thriving and those neighboring plants maybe that you know some of them might have they'll have other skills like being able to fix nitrogen or access phosphorus in certain kinds of soils you know so having those companions really actually allows the community to more fully uh use or capture the resources available to to the community okay so yeah i mean having communities of plants is much better than having them all along okay so you heard that here so professor simard thank you for being my guest on sustainability now thank you that those are great questions it was lovely to talk to you yeah it was great to talk to you um for our listeners i looked on youtube and i found 12 videos star starring professor simard Um, So there's plenty of information about her work uh, online. And you can also look up the Mother Tree Project to learn more about her research. And as always, I've put links to resources in the blurb for this show. So thanks for listening, and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make KSQD your community radio station, including Christine Barrington, who who was engineer for this show. So until every next, every other Sunday, sustainability now.